There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician. Hi, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. My name is Kate Caput, and I'll be your host. Today, we're talking about menopause with Dr. Pellin Batur, a women's health specialist. Menopause is a natural part of aging that marks the end of the female reproductive years, but so many of us don't know what to expect until we're in the midst of it. Maybe you just know that you'll stop having your period or you've heard about hot flashes, but what's really happening and why? And most importantly, how can you cope? Dr. Batur is here today to explain the stages of menopause and to walk you through some of the ways that you can deal with the many changes that it brings. Dr. Batur, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Excited. Fun. So I know that you've been on the podcast in the past talking about menopause. We're thrilled to have you back. Um, I like to start by having our guests tell us a little bit about themselves. So tell us about you. What kind of work do you do here at the Cleveland Clinic? What kind of patients do you typically see? Yeah. Um, so I have been here since 1998, a long time. Um, did an internal medicine residency and then a subspecialty training in women's health where I got all kinds of um, education from our osteoporosis center and endocrinology and gynecology. So I take care of all things hormonal for the OBGYN department. <coughs> um, and specifically, um, I work day to day in a menopause clinic, um, but I also helped the OBGYN department create several new programs, including a female sexual health program that I lead, as well as a medically complex contraception program. So my really focus is, you know, hormonal concerns often in women who have complex medical histories such as, you know, cancer or other problems. Perfect. So let's just jump right into it. Can you give us a brief overview of what menopause is and what is happening in our bodies when we're going through menopause? Yeah. So menopause uh, is defined as one year without periods in the absence of any other medical condition or medication that's impacting that, um, that uh, period flow. And so um, typically happens around age 51, 52. Um, and then the rest of your life, you live in menopause where you're no longer ovulating and you've lost the ability to have children. Now, there's also perimenopause or the menopause transition, and that can be up to a decade before menopause where periods start getting a little wonky, right? The menstrual cycles start getting a little wonky, um, sometimes closer together, sometimes skipping cycles. You may or may not be getting also some of the typical menopausal symptoms during that time. But the official time is one year without periods. So you mentioned that it normally happens around age 51. What can you tell us about when it happens sooner, about early and premature menopause or the medical conditions like you talked about that, that might induce uh, menopause earlier? Yeah, this is important to call out. I'm glad you bring this up. Um, so when we, when women um, go into menopausal state before age 40, uh, that is called premature menopause. Um, and then before age 45 is early menopause. And it's important to identify this because um, early, early loss of estrogen is associated with a lot of bad things. Um, estrogen has a very pr uh, protective role until, up until menopause for women. And so 
especially um, premature menopause, losing estrogen before age 40 is associated with increased risk of death, increased risk of heart disease, uh, lung diseases, a lot of neurological conditions, um, uh, osteoporosis, uh, bone breaks. Um, so really it's important to identify. Um, so if a young woman comes in, unless she's 35 and she's lost periods for the last four or five months, then, you know, I do a lot more hormone testing, for example, than I might in somebody who is 53 and just is going through the natural change process. But you also want to think about other conditions. Oftentimes thyroid problems uh, pop up around the same time as perimenopause menopause is. So we don't want to be blaming something on just menopause and not looking at some other medical conditions. And just, I always like to make sure that patient has a good primary care doctor, that they're up to date with their preventative visits, take a look at the medication list, check some, you know, get their history. And if it hasn't been done, check some basic labs like thyroid. Got it. So really looking at full body health and not just saying, oh, it must be this or, oh, you're, you know, reaching this age. So it's probably this. Absolutely. Okay. So you mentioned perimenopause and I feel like we don't hear as much about perimenopause, particularly the fact that it can last up to 10 years. What can you tell us about, about that perimenopause period and kind of what people go through during that time? How do you know when you're in perimenopause or can you only know if you go see a doctor like you? Yeah, no, um, basically there's early uh, early, uh, menopause transition and later menopause transition. And you don't necessarily have to see a doctor like me. Um, You can, basically you are starting to get some hot flashes, especially uh, right around the time of um, just before your period, uh, where women notice that more right on their period because that's when the estrogen levels drop. Um, That's normal. If you're just having a few days of hot flashes, um, most of us, again, tend to gain more weight with each passing decade. So you might be noticing some weight gain. Uh, sleep might be impacted, you know, there might be some symptoms um, that are occurring, but your periods are still rock solid. Um, So you don't want, if they're bothersome, you don't want to ignore them because a lot of times people will be told, oh, you can't be perimenopausal, you know, you're still having periods. Um, But if you're having some of those symptoms and they're not mild or bothersome, or you, you can, you know, make do with lifestyle changes and maybe just getting better sleep during that time, upping your cardio and then you don't have to worry about, you don't have to necessarily come in. That's a natural phase of life. Um, But if they're really bothersome, come on in, even if you're still having regular menstrual cycles. The late menopause transition is um, when you are getting a little closer. So that means that this, now the uh, cycle, the bleeding is actually becoming abnormal too. Um, oftentimes there's a period of time where the periods get closer together um, in the month, but it can also start to separate. And eventually as you get closer and closer to menopause, you start skipping. Um, and when you're starting to skip for prolonged periods of time, you know, if you're I think everybody should be seen by their doctor once a year anyways, bring that up. But if you're much younger, um, in your early 40s, younger than that, and you're skipping periods, you definitely have to um, bring that up to your doctor. So talk to us a little bit about that then. You know, I know we said it's a normal part of life. It's a normal part of aging. But if it's starting to happen sooner, you know, you talked about some of the risks. Um, What are the things that people need to know about about the risks of early menopause or early perimenopause um, to really keep themselves healthy? What do they need to talk to their doctors about? Are there any questions that you need to ask your doctor? Kind of what do you do there? Like we talked about, there's a lot of risks that are associated with early loss of estrogen. And so the it's 
pretty universally understood amongst menopause specialists that unless there's a real reason not to replace estrogen um, in that situation, you want to provide hormone replacement therapy. And I'm emphasizing replacement because in those situations, it's no different than somebody, you know, is underactive thyroid or they had their thyroid removed. Would we not give them thyroid replacement? Because we say, oh, look at the package insert. It says there's a lot of risks. No, we would replace it because otherwise your risk of medical problems like heart disease and other things would be increased if we left you hypothyroid. So I want, um, that's, I think, one big message I want um, listeners to take away is that if you've lost menopause, if you lost estrogen before age 45, or especially before age 40, it really should be replaced. And there's very few reasons why that would not be replaced. Um, and the way I like to think about it is, um, unless for a medical condition, you would actually go in and remove ovaries or give anti-estrogen treatments, there's no reason to withhold um, hormone replacement in those situations because the woman was meant to have that coursing through her veins. So if she is a breast cancer survivor, then, um, you know, of course, we're, we're going to really be thoughtful about any kind of hormone exposure to that woman. Um, however, you know, if she has colon cancer, rectal cancer, I mean, these individuals really need to be on hormone replacement therapy once their medical conditions have stabilized. So let's talk a little bit about some of those hormones then, uh, especially estrogen, which you've mentioned, and I know it's a key element of menopause and in our bodies. What does estrogen typically do? And like, what happens when those estrogen levels start to decline? Can you just walk us through kind of the science of the estrogen itself so that we have a better understanding of, of kind of what's happening? Sure. Um, so we have estrogen receptors throughout our body and our brain and our joints. Um, so many women just feel better when they have adequate hormones. And it's not just estrogen. We have estrogen, we have progesterone, we have testosterone, and they have all different roles. Um, so for example, you know, we always like to talk about heart risks and bone health when we talk about estrogen. But when women go through menopause, many will report some increased joint aches and pains. Um, it's important for sleep, you know, so when many women will report disruption of sleep, um, estrogen is a natural mood elevator. So it can actually, it doesn't necessarily work as well as an antidepressant does. Um, however, it can really have mood elevating effects. Um, progesterone can be a little bit more of our chill hormone, you know, um, so if, when we do a progesterone replacement, especially the more um, bioidentical types, it causes a sedating effect. It has some anti-inflammatory actions. Estrogen is good for our hair and our skin. Um, you know, it helps bring uh, moisture into the skin. It's thought to have anti-aging properties. Um, and then also testosterone has important function for sexual health. So it sounds like going back to your previous answer then, that if you are in early menopause, it's important to kind of have that treated. And then if you're kind of in menopause or in perimenopause as a normal part of aging, then it's more about lifestyle and kind of ways to cope and, and all of that. Is that right? Is it? No, not always. So that's a good question. I'm glad you um, brought that up because I think so much. So let's say you're a woman who's 53, you went through natural menopause, um, but you're having a lot of symptoms. Um, so should you just leave it alone and cope with it? Um, you know, we used to tell people the symptoms are going to last somewhere three to five years. Well, it turns out it's a little longer than that for the average woman, you know, seven to 10 years and some women who are really miserable, 12 years, and some people never get rid of their symptoms. So I think just saying grin and bear it and just eat healthier and lose some weight is not going to do it for a lot of women who are really suffering. 
Um, and I think a big issue is that for many, many years in this country, medical care has been about stamping out disease. Let's find the disease and treat it. And I think it's, there's been a nice shift in the last decade to more towards wellness. And that's where hormone therapy actually has an important role. Um, and I'm just going to digress a little bit. I think that one of the big reasons that a lot of women don't go on hormones is that we're such a risk adverse society and clinicians too, you know, doctors, nurse practitioners. It's like, well, these hormones say that they have a lot of risks and I don't want a problem to happen on my watch. Yeah, but what about that woman's wellness? We know hormone replacement therapy reduces risk of death in women in, who are within a decade of menopause um, or who are in their 50s, the overall positives outweigh the negatives. And even the American Heart Association um, came out with this. I mean, most of the menopause organizations have been saying this for over a decade, um, but even the American Heart Association recently came out saying, we do agree that for most women who are in natural menopause or early menopause in their 40s, 50s, there's a lot more pluses of the hormone therapy for minuses than minuses for the individual woman. So I think we do need to shift the conversation, not just about okay, just grin and bear it. And I just don't want you to um, have a side effects with this. Um, so I just don't want to get into that conversation to really about fostering wellness and listening, taking a look at the all the big picture for that woman. What are the pluses? What are the minuses for that individual patient um, and not making her suffer? That's great. I think that so many women will be happy to hear that because like you said, for so long, the narrative has been kind of, well, this is what happens when you get older. And that, that doesn't mean you're not miserable or, you know, and it doesn't, not everyone is, but some people are. And so I think it's really reassuring to hear that, that there's a shift in, in that approach. So let's talk about, you know, we've mentioned them already, but let's go through some of the symptoms of menopause, uh, which begin to happen when we're in perimenopause. And so, as you said, one of the biggest and clearest signs uh, is irregular periods. Why does this happen? What's like literally happening inside your reproductive system when you start to have irregular periods because of perimenopause? Um, yeah. So what's happening is that you are not ovulating as regularly. And so um, you sometimes might have um, still some uh, estrogen around, but you don't have uh, adequate progesterone from ovulation. And so you may skip a cycle and then you might, uh, but then end up having heavy bleeding because the uterine lining has thickened up from the estrogen impact. Um, so why is this, what, is, what does this mean? So what you should watch out for with your bleeding patterns, if you are having um, let's say you're in your late 40s and you are having your cycle still, but they're starting to space out or they're getting lighter or you skip several months in a row, but then the one you have after that is um, just a nice normal period. You can just keep an eye on that. Um, but if you're skipping, skipping months in a row, and then the one you have after is really heavy, like your body's trying to somehow compensate for that, that might be because you've thickened your uterine lining because of the estrogen and it needs to shed. Um, so that anything that's trending towards heavier bleeding, so, um, my periods were always five days and now there's seven days and I'm just soaking through pads and tampons. I'm getting a lot of spotting in between or the period that I do have, it's intermittent, but it's really heavy. You should always report that. A lot of those are, are hormonal, but we need to take a look and make sure you don't have a uterine polyp or, and also, you know, we always are thinking in the back of our minds, we never want to miss a uterine cancer. Um, so it's always good to talk about that with your doctor if there's been a change. 
Got it. A good reminder that bodies are complicated and there can be all kinds of things going on. Um, so, you know, I think that also brings up another good point, which is that sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to stop having my periods or, oh, my periods won't come as often. That's great. That sounds awesome. But as you mentioned, sometimes your period symptoms can actually get worse when you're in perimenopause. Why is that? Is that that's because of the, just the hormonal imbalance? Like, are there other period symptoms that can get worse as well? Like cramps, things like that? Right. So I would put that on the bucket of if you're noticing changes, um, I would just speak to your clinician and that way they can, because there's multiple, multiple reasons for cramping and heavy periods and a hormonal imbalance is only just one of them. Okay. So either way, if, if things start to change or you're particularly unhappy with the way things have changed, definitely time to see a doctor. What's your anything that's tending towards more bleeding? Okay. Um, one of the most, one of the most well-known symptoms of menopause is hot flashes. What can you tell us about hot flashes? Like, what are they? Why do they happen? And I guess most importantly, how do we deal with them? Okay. Yeah. So that's a very good question. Um, we don't, the good, the honest answer is we don't know exactly why hot flashes happen. You know, the, um, the, basically the part of your brain that generates the, um, temperature, uh, smack dab in the middle of your brain, the hypothalamus pituitary, it's probably somewhere in there. It's probably something related to, uh, the feedback from the hormones, but it's not exactly clear. There's a lot of active research on that area. And we might actually have some medications on the horizon that are non-hormonal that specifically impact those areas. But that's an area of active research. Um, and frankly, there's probably a lot of contributors to hot flashes because we know um, stress can make it worse. Your lifestyle, sometimes if you're um, using a lot of caffeine and um, alcohol and all those kind of things can actually trigger. Um, so the good old fashioned lifestyle tricks of keeping yourself healthy, getting your sleep, managing your stress. Is it a surprise that it actually helps for hormonal symptoms too? It's not a surprise to anybody, right? Doing what's good for us. You know, if you're good to your body, your body will respond and be good to you. Um, but how to treat them. So let's say you're doing all the right things and you're still miserable with the hot flashes. There's tons, you go online and you look it up. There's everybody that's trying to make a buck off of you. And not to be so blunt about it, but it is big business um, because a lot of people have been suffering for a long time. And because of the risks of hormone therapy, I blame us, the medical community, too. A lot of people turn their backs saying, oh, well, just, you know, just st stick it out. It won't, you know, it'll it'll be over soon. And it's nobody wants to be miserable. Nobody wants to be in a boardroom, you know, sweating all of a sudden. Uh, right. Why surgeon patients don't want to be sweating into their mask. And, the, you know, I mean, there's multiple reasons. A, a busy mom of three that has to get up and function all day doesn't want to be disrupted with night sweats and hot flashes. People care about these symptoms. So you go online and you see tons and tons of stuff advertised. Um, and there's an, another honest answer here is that the placebo effect for menopausal symptoms is really quite high. It's close to 40%. So that means that I can put together some Tic Tacs, put it in a nice bottle, sell a great story, write a book about it, whatever, and promote it. And I am going to be still of benefit to half of individuals out there. Um, and is that because we're all, you know, crazy and blah, blah, blah. I hope not because I'm perimenopausal myself and I don't, you know, I get hot flashes and I don't think I'm crazy. Um, uh, but the, I think the reason is, is because if negative energy going to your hypothalamus pituitary can drive up hot flashes, why can't positive energy, powers of wishful thinking and belief in something and, um, you know, having calm thoughts about your hot flashes, why wouldn't that make it better? So um, 
the, why does that matter? If somebody's taking something harmless and they're getting benefit, I'm all for it. But, you know, supplements are unregulated and we have had issues, significant issues with liver toxicity and other things, and not to mention the cost. And you're putting that through your liver. Um, so I think we have to be thoughtful about about what we put into our bodies and things that even have some of the longest safety track record, like, or I should say safety, longest use like black cohosh um, do help some individuals. They don't seem to help better than placebo. Um, studies are very mixed on that. So most of them show no benefit over placebo. Um, and there are warnings uh, from the FDA about liver toxicity if used for more than six months. Um, so you have to kind of make sure you're getting liver enzymes checked. So all things natural um, don't always necessarily equate to safe or effective. So you just, just fire beware. Um, there are some other holistic methods that if you wanted to talk about, you know, that I that haven't shown to be much better than placebo. Yeah, I would love to hear that. I was just going to ask really quickly, are there any supplements that you specifically that are dangerous that you see people taking or trying to take or, or hearing about that are like an absolute no-go that you want to warn people about? Yeah, there's nothing that's an absolute no-go, but um, unfortunately it's, you know, even though, so basically since there's no FDA oversight on the supplement market, it would take a long time to prove something is harmful. So there's a lot of people probably getting some sort of harm, not realizing it because they don't see it as a FDA approved risk, you know, or as a FDA um, risk, because sometimes it takes years and years of something being circulating in the market before uh, the, you know, the concerns come up about its risks. Okay. That makes sense. So let's talk about some of those holistic methods then. I think that could be really helpful to a lot of people, including myself. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in that mind-body connection. So there are several things that have been really shown to be helpful compared to sham procedures. So cognitive behavioral-based approaches, mindfulness therapies, hypnotherapy, surprisingly, you know, well-designed studies has been shown to be helpful. I used to recommend acupuncture, the data on it, recognizing that the data on it is mixed. The North American Menopause Society has a great website that you can go to, menopause.org. Um, they're our main medical society for North America, and they have lots of review. They basically review the scientific data um, and have nice explanations about, you know, what has data behind it, what doesn't. Um, and it's just hard to sometimes make time and carve out the chunk of change to, um, to follow through on these regimens. But the acu for the acupuncture, I, I think if you're going, the data on it, because it is so mixed, it's not concrete that it's helpful. If somebody's already going to an acupuncturist for their headaches or whatnot, I say, talk to them. They might be able to pop a few needles in for a menopause, but the data doesn't show that it's so effective. Um, and so I just don't want people shelving out a lot of change for acupuncture just for menopausal symptoms. Sure. If it's already part of your kind of lifestyle, then maybe you can ask to, to tackle the menopause piece, but you don't necessarily have to start seeing an acupuncturist for it. Um, okay. And this might be a sort of silly question, but are night sweats just hot flashes that happen while you're asleep? Yep, exactly. But they, they are linked to sleep disruption. And it's interesting. We used to think that, and you know, people would say, um, I get night sweats and then I wake up and I have to throw the covers off and I can't fall back asleep. And when you look at sleep studies, it's interesting. There's actually a distinct disruption in the sleep cycle first, oftentimes followed by a hot, uh, followed by the night sweat. Um, so it's really interesting how estrogen really impacts the sleep cycle because we know that actually happens during pregnancy too. 
Got it. And I think also worth saying that night sweats can be kind of a, a symptom of all kinds of other health issues as well. So if you're experiencing night sweats, important to get to a doctor to figure out what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because oftentimes I do see young women having normal menstrual cycles. They're in the, they're, they're 25. There really is not, their thyroid is fine. And they're saying, oh, uh, it must just be my hormones. Because I think that's become a trend just to blame everything on hormones. Um, and I think we need to sometimes take a step back from that. And yet we're a whole bag of hormones, right? Our body is full of, but it's not always estrogen progesterone. There's more than 50 hormones in our body. And we want to make sure it's not from serious medical conditions, right? Night sweats can be related to. Um, so especially like some, I see somebody, let's say she's 54 and I've got her in high doses of hormones because of her symptoms are so bad. We check her hormone levels. She's absorbing it properly and she's still having night sweats. I will work with uh, the primary care doctor, um, the endocrinologist to make sure we're not missing other, um, hormonal problems outside of just the estrogen deficiency there. Perfect. I think I'm going to start describing myself as a big bag of hormones. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So on, on the continued topic of hormones, menopause can also cause vaginal dryness, which can make for uncomfortable and even painful sex. Um, tell us a little bit about why this happens. And I suppose more importantly, again, what people can do about it. Yeah. And this is really important topic because a vaginal dryness impacts about half of women after menopause, but oftentimes women are suffering. They think they're alone. Okay. Um, and in fact, in our breast cancer survivors and other women taking anti-estrogen treatments, it's much higher and can be much much more severe. Um, and so it really needs to be addressed. And there's lots that can be done. First of all, we need to talk about it. We need to normalize it. You don't have to suffer in silence. Okay. Um, there are lots of good lubricants out there um, uh, that can be really helpful. There's healthy 18 year olds that use lubricants all the time. We there's It's more women are using lubricants than not. We have to normalize that. Um, but also uh, vaginal hormones are very effective. And in fact, vaginal hormones are oftentimes much more effective at treating vaginal dryness than even systemic hormones, meaning ones that you would put on your skin or take in your mouth. Um, and so you can actually get use creams, vaginal rings, suppositories to deliver the hormone right where you need it, where you're minimizing any kind of exposure to the breast or to the heart, um, especially if you're really nervous about being on hormones and having the hormones go through your bloodstream. You can get it straight to the vagina and you don't need to suffer. Got it. And are those by prescription then? Something you have to see a doctor for? Right. The hormones are prescription. What's the difference between vaginal dryness and vaginal atrophy, which is also a, a part, can be a part of menopause? Yeah. Vaginal dryness is a symptom and vaginal atrophy is the medical term that is used. Vaginal atrophy is actually an older term. We changed that, not me, but it's been changed to uh, GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And the reason it was changed to that long word is because it doesn't just affect the vagina, it can also impact the urinary structures. Um, so where women feel like they're um, not just dry, but you know they can't get a break from vaginal infections, or they feel like they have a vaginal infection, they go to their doctor, nope, nope, your swabs are clear. Or same similar story with the urine, where they feel like they're getting urinary tract infections, UTIs, but you go and yeah, you might have one, or you might not even have a UTI, but you feel like you have one. And the vaginal hormones can be very, very helpful for those. Okay. So another one is uh, hair thinning or even hair loss during menopause. Why does this happen? And is there any way to prevent it or to stop it? Yeah. You know, hair loss is a tough one and I hate to sound like a broken record, but there are lots of causes of hair loss. 
Um, so you always want to take a look at your vitamin levels, your thyroid function. There's uh, a set set of labs that you know dermatologists and us we will do for if hair loss is really bothersome. But the reality is, as we age, most of us are going to have some age-related thinning. Um, so that's why when you look at Grandma's picture from when she was younger, 18, she has this big head full of hair, tiny little waist, and you know when she's 60, uh, she you know, certainly might still look like that, but it's going to take a lot of work and effort to continue to work with that like that. Um, so if you just leave things to nature, we're going to notice change in our midriff where we're getting, getting more um, fat around our midriff and our hair is thinning. So some of these things do happen and you can fight hair loss, um, not just with hormones, but lots of other, you know, topical over-the-counter products. So you don't necessarily have to be on hormone therapy for hair loss, but we do know estrogen has beneficial effects on hair loss, not just after menopause, but in younger women um, who go on birth control pills, oftentimes that can actually help improve hormonal hair changes. So another one that I've heard about is body hair, uh, that actually the, the body hair like on your legs starts to grow in lighter, but that the reverse of that is that we sometimes start to grow hair in new places, like on our chins. What can you tell us about body hair? Um, yeah, so those are some of the natural shifts that do happen that I was mentioning to you. So um, the as you drop estrogen, what's happening is that some of your testosterone has a little bit more powerful effect relatively. And so some of the things that I was describing, such as some of the hair thinning, some of the weight around the waistline, and some of the hairs on the chin um, are thought to be related to that shift. Um, not that your, I mean, your testosterone levels drop as you get older too, but they drop much more slowly over time. So when your estrogen dr levels drop abruptly, the testosterone is playing a little bit more of a dominant role during that stage. Um, so similarly, um, being on hormone replacement can be helpful if the hair on the chin is pretty, pretty disruptive. But typically I find that that's not really a big concern for individuals unless that was a big concern for them throughout their younger years. Um, they just want to know that, okay, this is normal, but you will also see that pubic hair also becomes a little bit more scant and a little bit more just, you know, widely distributed. Take out the widely distributed, that sounds stupid. <laughs> um, the that the pubic hair becomes more scant. So you will notice some of those shifts in the hair distribution, and that is normal. Hormone therapy can offset some of that, but it doesn't need to be offset if it's not bothersome. Okay. So if you've got a, a couple chin whiskers, suddenly they're normal, pluck them out, good to go. You got it. So, you know, you have mentioned this, but I know that during menopause, there's also potential for issues that we can't always see like bone loss. What can you tell us about bone loss in menopause, including kind of what that is and, and why it happens? And again, what, what needs to be done about it? Yeah. So we know estrogen, um, bone frankly, all the hormones, but estrogen in particular is very important for um, bone development, maintenance of bone density. So after um, estrogen loss, there is a pretty rapid drop in uh, bone density. It's most rapid in the first five years. Um, and so if you are able to, if some, let's say a woman is having a lot of menopausal symptoms um, and she, she has a family history of osteoporosis or she went to a health fair and they told her the heel scan was low or she got a bone density and it was low, um, then that's a perfect opportunity to use some hormone therapy just to stave off that bone loss, especially for women who are in their earlier 40s. They have then 
of all, more all close to a decade longer of bone loss. Um, and that's important because, you know, osteoporosis fractures are uh, more common than our risks of heart disease stroke combined. Um, so, you know, people worry about their heart and cancer risks, but the reality is many more of us are at risk of having an osteoporosis related fracture that can impact not only quality of life, but in the case of hip fractures, quantity of life as well. I think that's really important and really, you know, a little bit scary because like you said, you can sort of manage some of the uh, more visual elements of menopause, but you got to make sure you know what's happening inside. So talk to me a little bit more about treatments um, for menopause. When people come to you, uh, in they're going through menopause, they're having all kinds of issues. You know, wh- what are the options? Yeah. And let's tie that in with your prior question about the bone health, because that was a good one. So when I think about hormonal treatments for both menopause and bone health, um, a strategy that I've employed that I think works well, let's say a woman comes in, she's 52, she's worried about her bones, she's feeling miserable, um, and she is a good candidate for hormone replacement therapy, wants to start it. Um, If we start hormone therapy, if she has a uterus and she needs a progesterone too, um, that's estrogen uh, progestin type of therapy, then for the you know breast cancer risks don't really start to increase until closer to five years of use so for the first five years she can go on the hormone therapy note recognizing that the risks to her are minimal um, but help protect her bones and let's say after that um, she's worried because she does have a she develops a family history of breast cancer and now her symptoms have subsided you know she went on a vacation she forgot her hormones and she found that oh these hot flashes aren't that bad for me anymore then we actually have um, these designer estrogens where they have like estrogen-like effects and anti-estrogen effects. And I don't think we need to go into that in this conversation. We actually went into that a little more in detail in one of our prior podcasts with um, the head of the um, Osteoporosis Center. If people are interested in looking that one up, if you YouTube Cleveland Clinic Osteoporosis, Dr. Deal or Dr. Batour, it'll pop up. Um, But there you can actually intervene five years with a medication that has anti- um, anti, um, breast cancer effects, uh, and then, but still have, it's FDA approved for bone health. We're kind of it's a nice little segue before you actually jump into the other osteoporosis treatments. So there's different ways to think about it and, you know, bring these up with your, um, osteo, with your osteoporosis specialist and menopause specialist. But let's talk about the hormone therapy. So if you are, don't have a uterus and you, um, you just need um, estrogen alone, that's a much more favorable pro and con where you don't increase breast cancer risks for 20 years and maybe beyond. Um, In fact, in our studies that looked at the risks and the benefits of hormone replacement, even 20 years out, women using that specific type of hormone replacement had a reduction in breast cancer risk if they were on estrogen only. Um, and I always like to say that out loud. I like scream that out loud for people in the back. Sure. So um, the package insert warns you that, you know, you take hormones, you're going to get breast cancer. It's a very scary package insert. But if you're using estrogen plus progestin, um, that risk doesn't start to increase until five years. But if you had a hysterectomy and you're on estrogen alone, even at 20 years, in the same studies that they did to guide that package insert labeling uh, about warning about risks, women had a reduction in their risk of breast cancer, not only of being diagnosed with it, but being of dying with it. Um, so 
you know, there's a much better safety track record with estrogen alone. But remember, if you have a uterus, you need that progestor, the progestin too, um, because otherwise you can't use estrogen alone. It can impact uterine cancer risk. And so forgive me if this is an inelegantly worded question, but then if you do start menopause early or if, if you're, if you go into early menopause and you need to be on, you do have a uterus, you need to be on estrogen and progesterone you said your risk goes up after five years, but if you go into it early, then you're probably going to need it for longer. What is the, what do you do there? Kind of how do you balance that risk? That was very eloquently put. And that's a very important question, actually. Um, So, and I'm glad you mentioned it because I neglected to mention that. Um, So when you go into earlier premature menopause and we replace hormone replacement um, in those situations, the, um, the norm is that you continue until the natural age of menopause until age about 51, 52. And then you make decisions about whether you want to start true hormone therapy. They even have different names. One is hormone replacement therapy because you're replacing something that was lost versus hormone therapy is the average woman 52 and beyond coming in um, saying, hey, listen, I'm having symptoms or I want this for bone protection. Should I use it? That's hormone therapy because in that case, we're giving you something extra that you weren't meant to have. So there's going to be some pros and cons. But in the other situation, we're replacing what you were supposed to have. So you're really, your clock starts at 52. Okay. So the hormone replacement therapy is essentially then safer to be on until the time when you like, quote, would have hit menopause anyway. And then you shouldn't be on the hormone, the hormone therapy for longer than five years. So there's no shouldn't, um, but it really is a a balance of risks and benefits. Got it. But that makes more sense in terms of the timeframes. I think helpful to know the difference between hormone therapy and hormone replacement therapy and, and the timeframes that, that again, the, where the risk balance comes into play for each of them. And you're using the word timeframes, which is good because that's, there's something called the timing hypothesis. And when you look at the package insert, we use the timing hypothesis to figure out, does this package insert apply to this patient? Because most package inserts of a medication they are very accurate, right? They, it's an antibiotic. It tells you you can get diarrhea or you can get this. And that's true for most women, regardless of their age. It's a little different with, package, with the package insert of hormone therapy. The um, package insert warns about risks that um, if a woman went through menopause for 10 years already, she's now in her mid-60s and 70s, and she decides to start hormone therapy, what are her risks? So it's going to talk about, it really looks like somebody's trying to murder you. It's going to tell you. Yeah, it's very, they're scary. They're very, it's a very scary package insert. It's going to say you're going to have a heart attack, you're going to have a stroke, you're going to have breast cancer. But sure, if you want to treat your hot flashes, go ahead. That's what it sounds like when I read it. Okay. Um, so, but that's for a woman, most of us are not starting hormone therapy in women who in their sixties and seventies who have been estrogen, you know, without their estrogen for more than a decade, there's exceptions to that rule, but in general, we're, you know, cause there there's benefits. There's still the bone benefits. There's still the colon cancer reduction. There's still um, all the other benefits, but the risks are sound scarier. So the pros and cons is not as evenly weighted versus when you're in your fifties, there's a op- window of opportunity where there are um, the risks are much lower and the benefits are much higher. And in fact, for women in their fifties, they are they do not seem to have those elevated cardiovascular risks. And in fact, women in their fifties are thought to have a reduction 
in their risk of um, heart disease, especially if they're on estrogen only. And they die, and we know across the board, women die less when they're on hormone therapy. It doesn't matter the age group, um, but the um, th that is much more uh, a powerful reduction in death as you get younger and younger and you're on hormone therapy. So what age you um, start hormone therapy makes a difference about whether that package insert applies to you. And like we talked about, for women in premature and early menopause, it's actually you're at increased risk of all those scary things in the package insert if you don't take hormone therapy. So it's actually reversed. So much like you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet, the package insert is it needs to be taken with quite a lot of context and nuance in terms of how it applies to you as an individual. Absolutely. Got it. So, you know, I know that we talked about supplements to be a little bit wary of, but what about supplements like calcium supplements and vitamin D? Um, are those things that are important to be on when you are going through this time in your life? I think it's important to make sure that you have adequate vitamins of all types um, and calcium and vitamin D is important for bone health. Um, however, for menopause in particular, besides the, you know, um, decrease in bone density, they're not going to help you with hot flashes or other types of symptoms. And so are there non-hormonal treatments then for menopause or are they all hormonally based? Yeah, good question. So, um, no, I always think of it as three buckets of a woman's coming in and saying, I'm miserable. What can I do? There's a holistic bucket that we talked about managing stress and those kind of things. Um, sprinkling flax seeds. We have great um, patient education materials on our Cleveland Clinic handout. If you uh, go into our, um, and maybe, uh, uh, you guys can uh, give the link somewhere for our patients. Um, but the, uh, you know, dietary uh, approaches that don't work as well, but they don't cost anything. They don't have side effects. Then there's the hormone therapy that is a lot, a lot more complicated, uh, individualized discussion in the office. Um, and then there are the non-hormonal treatment options. And there's several that actually haven't shown compared to placebo in well-designed studies. They do work. Um, a big number of them are antidepressants. And it's not because we're saying, oh, yeah, just take it easy, my dear. That's not why. Because, you know, it really has been shown, especially in breast cancer survivors who sometimes have the worst symptoms to really help sometimes 75% or so reduction in um, uh, flashes. And then there's some seizure medications, gabapentin, neurontin that have been shown to help. There's a um, bladder medicine called oxybutynin for um, urinary leakage that really has been shown. They haven't been really compared to each other, so we don't know if one is much better than each other, but they have been compared to placebo and they are helpful. And those are all available also on our um, patient education websites. You know, and are there any other ways to kind of to find relief from some of these symptoms uh, that, that you think are worth mentioning? I know we've we've talked about medication. We've talked a little bit about some of the lifestyle changes, anything else that people should know? Just remembering that this is really an individual thing. So I think social media is great, um, but to like think about things that you didn't know to ask or didn't know to look up. But um, I just, I mean, we covered on most of the treatment approaches, um, but I really uh, would say just it's a social media is a double-edged sword where there's a lot of wrong information steering people, to wh whether it's with good intent or with maybe on the background, they're making money off of things. Because I think because the medical community wasn't very good about addressing menopausal years for many decades, especially when these hormone therapy studies first came out 20 years ago, 
there we didn't really understand that it's like just more the older population 60s 70s and beyond where we're worried about the risk so there was a flood of women coming off the hormone therapy um, but they were miserable and so what happened is there were well-intentioned providers that maybe were not menopause trained um, but they were they're doing a lot of custom compounding putting pellets in um, and we do see sometimes the ricochet effects. We've had diagnosed many cancers where women were given compounded hormones where they were um, not balanced correctly. So it's really always important if you're um, being given whatever type of estrogen, if you're, you absorb it very well through your skin, but if you don't have an adequate progestin to protect your uterus, you don't want to do that through compounding. You want an FDA approved treatment for that. We have diagnosed many um, uterine cancers where that was done um, mishandled, you know, at a local clinic where they were just trying to help out people with doing all this non FDA approved stuff. So you do a little bit of buyer beware um, and pellets. We do not recommend because women can get really sky high levels and they have to detox off. Okay. And then, so related, relatedly, one last question for you is what is the right kind of doctor to see? Do you ask your OBGYN about menopause? Do you need to see a menopause specialist? Kind of where, where should people start and where might they end up um, in terms of trying to find help? Yeah, so there are uh, several of us that are certified in menopausal medicine by the North American Menopause Society. It means, you know, we uh, we prove that we're going to these meetings and conferences and we've taken a test to show that we've actually passed. Um, and so that's a good, a good site to start with because in North America, you can find a menopause provider near you. But the reality is there's only a handful of us. And so um, there are lots of great primary care doctors, um, OBGYNs, endocrinologists that are very well versed in menopausal care. Um, I just uh, want to make sure that, you know, that, do I do some compounding? I do. When I don't have an FDA approved way or a patient has had intolerance to FDA approved methods, um, you know, I, I do compound. However, you just have to be careful about somebody who is, uh, you know, not giving you the full gamut of options and only saying this is the only right approach and um, because you do want to do things safely when you're dealing with hormones. And also just remember, you know, if you're going to your OBGYN or your um, or your um, primary care doctor and you say, hey, let's speak up and say, hey, listen, this is miserable. I think my hormones are going going haywire, but they may ask you to come back for another visit because as you can see, it's very complicated. And depending on what your medical history is, it might get even more complicated. So that's something that they're probably not going to be able to cover an annual visit. And it's okay, How, you know, make another visit, speak up so it's being addressed, but make a dedicated time with your provider because they may be very well trained, but you may feel blown off because you've already covered so many other things. They just don't feel like they will do that justice at that visit. Okay. So really make sure that you are advocating for yourself and, and getting the time to kind of talk through all of the options, all of the possibilities. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's see. We've covered a lot of ground. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but is there anything else that you think we uh, haven't talked about today that's important for our listeners to know about menopause? Be patient with us um, because there's so few menopause clinicians. There's oftentimes long wait times. Um, and our visits can go pretty long because as we talked about, our hormones impact so much of our body that there can be multiple different symptoms a woman is bringing up and she's not sure which one of these are hormonal. So these visits tend to be lengthy. Um, so, you know, we're trying our best. We're seeing people from all over the world coming in because it's just an unmet need. 
And I hope that lots of you women will empower themselves with, you know, getting the right kind of education. We'll have a new line of uh, menopause clinicians because as we age, there's going to be even more of an unmet need, but be patient with your clinician. They might get a little behind in clinic. They might need to squeeze you in uh, and it might take a little longer than you um, expected, but it's just because we're working really hard and we're really listening to you because women are complex. All right, Dr. Batura, thank you so much for being here with us today to talk about such an important topic. This was really helpful to me. I hope that it was really helpful to our listeners as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. To schedule an appointment with a women's health specialist, please call 216-444-6601 or visit clevelandclinic.org slash women. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.